0: Praise the Lord. <laughs> Can we breathe for a moment? <laughs> now, now we've done everything. Shee-hee. okay. It's good to be together. So we've been going with our series, Free Indeed, and today I want to talk about free to live. And uh, you'll remember that right from the start, uh, when I spoke about freedom and started talking about this, I said, we've got to remember that there's the two sides of the journey of freedom. There's the side of what I'm free from, and there's the side of what I'm free to. And um, for the first while now, I've really been speaking about what we're free from. Today, I want to begin to move over and talk more about what we are free to, because that's ultimately where we want to get. And so last week, when I spoke about freedom from shame, you'll remember I said there's four truths we have to accept if we are going to find freedom in Christ. And these four truths we have to accept was sin. Sin that I am born in sin and that I sin. I have to accept that truth as the Bible describes it. The second truth is that because of sin, we are guilty. I am guilty. Sometimes I feel guilty. Sometimes I, I don't even feel guilty, but I'm guilty. Guilty of sin, I've broken the, God's law. That brings with it the third truth that I have to accept, which is the truth of shame. That there are things that I do that are wrong and shameful. But more than that, there's also that I have this propensity towards sin and that brings shame into my life I have fallen away from God's original intent who he meant me to be and we now live in this disordered state and that brings shame to us and then the fourth truth that we have to accept which is the truth that deals with those three things sin guilt and shame is the truth of repentance and the power of repentance and that's why I want to pick up today and then move a little bit from there like you to go with me to Psalm 32. It's one of my favorite portions of Scripture, is Psalm 32. Now, if you know this, that Psalm 32 is one of three Psalms that David wrote after his sinning with Bathsheba and the public um, exposure of that sin that happened. So, you'll know the story that not only did David commit adultery and abusing his power by getting this woman, Bathsheba, but to to get to her, he killed her, had her husband put in harm's way, which led to his death. So here we find a David in a very shameful situation. Now think about this. David is this extremely important character in Scripture. It is said he's a man after God's own heart. So much of our Scripture, the beautiful poetry that was written by this man that that spoke so really about the human Condition and the human experience and worship and how we how we approach God and how we interact with God. He was this great leader, this military powerful man, this guy that slayed Goliath when he was just a young person. And so he's like a you know a role model in scripture, held up to be such a wonderful person that represents God. Did so much good, not only for his nation, but just as a as a worshiper and as a person. And this wonderful person that represented so much good sinned and failed horribly, deeply, profoundly. This person that looked like they were an embodiment of good failed and failed very badly. And their their failure became public knowledge. Imagine what David must have felt like. The shame that he was carrying. The guilt. Because God's law was well known to him. He had a personal relationship with God. He was the guy that when the demons were arousing Saul to become you know, unruly, that David would play music and the Spirit of God would channel through David and bring peace into the room. He's this beautiful believer. And yet he commits this egregious sin, horribly. And everybody knows it. He didn't. He tried to hide it, but God sent the prophet and exposed him. And now he's got to deal with this. I think this is such a fantastic story in Scripture that speaks so much, that I can identify with, speaks so much of our human condition, that we try and be the best people we can be But sometimes when we least expect it, it just all collapses. And we fail horribly and miserably. And David sits with this reality. And in this time, as he's processing and dealing with this, he writes Psalm 32 as one of his psalms of repentance. And he begins the psalm, I'm going to read the first five verses, with this declaration. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Imagine there was no forgiveness available for David. Imagine if he became aware of this sin of having a person killed. Can we we perhaps say that, you know, a, a, a murder of some sorts? The adultery that he committed. How he broke God's law. How he disappointed God. Imagine if there was nothing that can be done about it. But that was now his story. That was now David's life. Almost wiping out every other good thing that he's ever done. This would be the point of his demise and his failure. But he said, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. In the words of our song this morning, he was saying, it's not over. It's not over. My low point, my public shaming is not the end of my story. It's not over. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Because forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is real. Forgiveness is provided for us whose sins are covered Although he's now in a state of public shame, exposure, he says, I'm I'm blessed because God will cover my sin. What an amazing thought. What a difference that makes. Yes, I've sinned, but it's not the end of my story. There's more to it. There's more. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now what I find fascinating here is to remember that David is is writing words here that you and I would feel very comfortable with because we have seen the cross. We know what the cross did. Remember, he doesn't know about the cross yet. He doesn't know about the total forgiveness that's coming in Christ. All he knows about is that every now and then they will do a sacrifice where an animal will be slaughtered and, the, and they would transfer their sin onto the animal and the animal will be sacrificed and that would buy them some temporary relief from their sin. That's the only thing he knows. He knows. But yet when he writes this, can you hear in his language, he's talking about something far more absolute than that experience of temporary relief from sin through a sacrifice. He's, he's grasping something in the spirit. He's in a sense prophetically seeing hundreds of years down the road, not knowing quite what's gonna happen, but he's recognizing the character and the nature of God and he's saying, my God is a God that forgives totally and absolutely, that will cover my sin." He's got a revelation. He's got an understanding about something he should know nothing about. It's not written. He can't really read about this in the, as you and I can read through New Testament scriptures. It's hinted at. It's, it's sort of understood. But this man, in this moment of depth of sin and shame and disappointment, says, I have a God that'll cover my sin. That'll cover my sin. That will find a way to not let this be the final thing that people say about me. He will cover it. He will take away. What an amazing thought. But then he steps back in his poetic writing and he talks to us about what it feels like before, what it felt like for him before he began to deal with this sin. Before He experienced the relief, the joy, the hope that comes with knowing God's forgiveness and God's restoration. There was a moment before he experienced that, perhaps longer than a moment, a bit of time there, when before he experienced that, and he writes to us about that, he says this in verse three. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He's describing to us the human experience Before we repent of our sin. When we become aware that there's something wrong in us. When we begin begin to feel the pain of the guilt and the shame of our sinfulness and our sin condition. And how we've committed sin. Now sometimes you, you know that feeling. Sometimes you feel it and it's not like you haven't committed a murder or adultery. But just something you go, oh I said that stupid thing again. I shouldn't have said that. And you feel that. Horrible feeling. He describes it as, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Now, I think when we come up and we really begin to see our sin, and it, it's, it's covering layers, it's it's uh, the things that obscure it, the, the little things that we tell ourselves and, and, and the narrative that we build to make sin more palatable and to make it more manageable. When, when all of those things are peeled away, you get to a moment like David here where he looks at his sin dead in the eye and he sees it for how horrible it is. He says, my bones are wasting away. Have you ever felt that? It's like God is beginning to take your strength away from you. You feel the pain. You see, because, and, and, and remember I said it last week, sin is always a very personal offense against a personal God. When, when I get to that place, when I move beyond the damage my sin has done to me and I begin to actually feel the weight of what my sin has done to God and my relationship with Him and how it affects Him, how it personally offends Him, my bones begin to waste away. I feel the, the burden of that, the weight Perhaps it was in those days when when David would refuse to eat and would lie on the floor in the temple and would be praying. In those moments he felt this utter lostness and shame. He says, my bones are wasting away through my groaning all day long. I was groaning under the burden of my sin. I was groaning. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Hey, can you identify with that statement? As in, hey, South Africa 2023. Woohoo! Hey, you know that feeling of like last night I, I got to bed like at half past 12 and uh, it was hot. I struggled to fall asleep because it was so hot. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. Do you know that God loves you enough that he will impress upon you the weight of your sin? Because it's the only way he can really get you free. Is if we begin to understand the weight and the the cost of it. And sometimes we feel that because God, he allows his hand to be heavy upon. He holds us. He opposes us. He Let's us feel how death breathes upon you. Because remember, sin is death. And you feel how life is being sucked out of you because of your sin. And you feel that. And so he's describing for us in his words this emotional anguish, this psychological fear and anxiety that he's going through Because he knows how far he has stepped away from the father that he loves. How he's disappointed and failed him. His sin is laid bare before him, naked before him. And he stands there and he says, this is too much for me to bear. Because I cannot fix this. I cannot change this. I cannot restore this man's life. I cannot take back what I've done, my abuse. How I've given in to my urges and desires I cannot undo it and he and he's and he's there and he feels this but then in verse 5 he says then I acknowledged my sin to you then I acknowledged my sin I stopped skirting the issue I stopped covering it up I stopped making it less than what it was I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Did not cover up my iniquity. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden. When God found Adam and Eve in their sin and they said, we were ashamed so we hid from you. What did they do? They sewed together fig leaves to cover their nakedness and their shame. The problem with fig leaves is as soon as they come into the sun, they begin to wither. Now, you and I don't do fig leaves anymore. I don't know when last you saw somebody walking down the street with like a fig leaf outfit on, you know. It's like, hey, sponsored by Pringle or somebody, you know. It's like, I've got a really classy fig leaf outfit. No, we don't do that. What we do is we cover up because we describe our sin a little different. We, we make it less than what it actually is. We use language that softens how ugly it may Look, we, we have excuses. Oh, you know, I was tired. Or, oh, you know, I, 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 you know it, it was that person. Or we, we find ways and we cover up our sin to, to, just, to just so that we don't feel the horror of it. So we don't have to feel the anguish and the pain of seeing it for what it really is. David says, I acknowledged my sin. I, I agreed with you. I stopped trying to cover it up, call it something different. Lord, it's ugly. You know, I got a man killed. I abused my power to take his wife away from him. There's no nothing I can say to make it feel or look better. It's horrible. And in that something begins to shift. Now, this psalm has deep meaning for me because there was a stage in my my own journey in sort of my twenties where I was struggling to to get a handle on some of my own sin issues and how sin was manifesting in my life. And, And and I went through that period of time where you know I would I would so desperately desire to not sin and to please God and to live right with God. And you know, I was yeah, year of your life, and in training center and you know aspiring to be a pastor one day and but yet I had the struggle and every now and then I would fall and fail horribly in my sin and then I would I would come to the Lord and you know say Lord I'm so sorry but most of the time when I when I came to him I was just trying to to just get like okay Lord I'm sorry let's move on we're not going to dwell here we're not going to talk about this for very long because you love me and you know And there came a point in my deep personal anguish in that of just shame that the Lord said to me, and and he brought me to this psalm, and this verse caught my eye when he said, said, and and, uh, um, I acknowledged my sin, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I knew I was covering up my sin with nice language. And, And so the Lord taught me something. The Lord said to me, describe your sin to me. I said, Lord, but you know what I did. I don't have to tell you. He said, no, no, you need to tell me. Describe it to me. Describe to me how you felt, what you enjoyed, what you liked about it. Describe it to me like I wasn't there, like I don't know. And that started becoming my habit. I would describe my sin to the Lord. Not so that he could know it, but so that I could begin to acknowledge it. That I could look at it in the eye, that I could begin to grasp what this is. And as I did that, something began to shift in my life. I acknowledged my sin. I stopped covering it up. You see, because where sin is recognized, forgiveness becomes possible. If sin is not recognized, you cannot be forgiven. And then repentance can't work. So, He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Imagine that relief. I caused a man to lose his life. I abused my power. I took a woman. I entered into an adulterous relationship as the king of the nation and I've been ashamed. But you forgave me the guilt of my sin. It doesn't change the fact that he sinned. It doesn't change the fact that that sin has consequences, which he would later pay for in his life and feel the pain of it. But it wasn't the end of his story. He was forgiven. There came a moment in David's time where he repented and prayed and cried and covered himself in sackcloth. But there came a moment when he stood up and dusted himself off and said, I'm forgiven. He didn't minimize what he did wrong. He didn't say, let's forget about that and let's just get over it. He said, I am forgiven. That's very different. I'm forgiven. I've been, my guilt has been removed from me. Now again, this is an astounding revelation to the level that David had this hundreds of years before Christ was to come. He understood something. My sins, my guilt is forgiven. And that is what repentance does for us. Repentance changes everything because it causes us to step into forgiveness. And God's forgiveness is absolute. It's complete. I forgive you. I forgive you. I will not hold this against you. I will not continue to put this on your account. It's been taken care of. You can live again. Because if there was no forgiveness, then all that could be done is David would have to find some legal way to pay for his sin and be spending the rest of his days just sort of trying to pay for what he did. But now God says, you are forgiven. There's still restoration to be paid. There's still things that has to be dealt with. But God says, this is not between you and me anymore. You have not lost your relationship with me. In fact, David, you are probably getting closer to me now because you're beginning to understand something more about who I am. You are forgiven. And that fundamentally changes everything. Remember, I described it to you last week and you know this very well. The process of repentance is this process of I'm going this way towards disorder, disobedience, rebellion. Everything in my being is set on my own way. We've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Lord, we will not do good and evil because it's what you desire. We will decide what is good and evil according to our desires. Now I'm going to live my life the way I wanted to live it and what I want from life is important. It's about me. This is the direction I'm walking. And it is this that when I repent, God sets me free from the bondage of this and sets me free to... The freedom of saying, Lord, no longer what I want, but what do you want. Not my will be done, but your will. No longer my desires that will rule my life. No longer my, my in thoughts, dreams, hopes, everything. That is not what I'm going to live anymore for. I'm now going to live, Lord, for what it is that you desire. What pleases you. Teach me your ways, Lord. I'm dying to this self of self expression, self validation, self enamored, self righteousness, self everything. I'm dying to that. And I'm saying, Lord Jesus, in you I live and have, move and have my being. You are my Alpha and my Omega, my beginning and my end. Everything in my life is about you, Jesus. That's the change of repentance. And that's what Paul describes for us, for instance, in Romans 8. Remember, I spoke about Romans 8 before, and I said Romans 8 is the pinnacle of Scripture when it comes to this idea of the power of of freedom and forgiveness and what it means. Romans 8 verse 5 says the following, verse 5 to 8. Those who live according to the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh is this. My way. I want what I want. My flesh, I will trust myself to get what I want, to live the right life that is right and good, and that will give me the best of what I want. That's the flesh. And, it is a, and the flesh is an enmity with God. It is God is actually the obstacle from getting me to where I want to be. I'm against God. I rebel. I don't want God's way. Now, sometimes that flesh is expressed in very nice and religious terms, but underneath, that's what it is. Even people that go to church and, you know, are very religious and look like they, in Afrikaans we have this saying, groot When somebody describes somebody to me as a groot christen, I want to run away. Because groot christen are sometimes people that just have learned how to put a veneer of Christianity on their life, but underneath here, there's a flesh like David saw, it suddenly pop up. I remember once listened to a story of a guy who served five American presidents as a valet, kind of you know, butler. And he said, the more they pray in public, the deeper their sin is behind the scenes. I will not mention any Trump presidents in this moment. <laughs> Forgive me for that little side thought. Some of you are gonna write me letters now. We we can learn how to dress this flesh up nicely, but underneath there's this burning desire. I just want to do what I want to do, and if God is going to be the thing that'll help me get there, then I'll use God as long as he can help me get there, but I want what I want, and it's this animosity with God. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Paul is saying, when I repent, it's not just merely, it's not actually an outward thing that changes, it's a deeply inward thing that changes. When I live this way and I'm in the flesh, I've got my mind set on the things of the flesh. And it's because my mind is focused in a certain direction that my whole life is moving in that direction. And that's producing in me all kinds of evil. So in David's story, there was probably in his secret place, there were desires going on. There were things that he was trying to control and trying to manage, but he was struggling. And one day... He was on the, on the rooftop and he saw a lady bathing and in that moment, the, the, every protection mechanism he put in place to st- stop him from giving in to his desires broke and it just came rushing forth, this flesh. This is the, but it's the mind, it's the being that's set on that. When I repent, it's not my actions that change, it's my orientation. It's this thing in me that begins to shift and no longer is my mind set on my fleshly desires, but my mind gets set on God's desires. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12 verse 1 says. So this process of repentance is this deep reorientation that happens within me. The old self is I'm laying that down, the mind set on the things of the flesh, and I'm putting my mind on the things of the Spirit, because you and I know that the, where your mind is focused is that where your life will go, isn't it? What your mind sees is what you go towards. Many of you know, Natasha and I, we love going to the Kruger Park. This year, we only got it right to go three times. We were supposed to go four times, but you know, we, whenever we have a moment, we'd like. if it's for two days, we slip away and... Uh, we taught our kids from young to enjoy the Kruger Park. And uh, the way we did it is we always had a competition. So some of you know this, so forgive me for telling you this again. But we always had a competition in the car. So every, we have a book. Every animal in the park that you can possibly spot up to sort of mid-sized birds. Small birds, we're still growing towards that. But sort of, you know, like you know, bigger birds and, and beyond. All has a points value. So... Then we divide into teams in the car, normally two or three teams, depending on, you know, how it goes. And then as we're driving, you're looking for the animal. Because the first person to spot that animal for the day gets the points. So a roybok is one point. Because you know what the other word for a Roybok is? It's a veerbok or a genbok, another one, another one. There are hundreds of thousands of roebuck in the park. So that's one point. It's not difficult to spot. All the way up to 20 points. 20 points is something like a cheetah or like a pangolin or something. You know, it's 20 points. Very rare. So then we tabulate. So the first person to spot that animal for the day, we tabulate, and then that team wins. And I get to buy everybody ice cream. So no matter if I'm in the winning team or not, I buy ice cream. The winning team gets Magnums. The others get a little bit cheaper ice cream. Okay, so... That's what we do. Now, my challenge is I'm driving, generally. Most of the time, I'm driving. So now, I'm part of this competition. I wanna pull my weight. Natasha is phenomenal at spotting things. That's why she's got those big glasses, so she can see things. She's like, and the older she gets, the bigger the glasses are gonna be, and it's only because she wants to spot the animals. And look at me, my, her beautiful husband also, obviously. But, so, so I wanna pull my weight. Now, the problem is I'm driving. And so I generally spot the things that are in the road first. But every now and then I want to see what's going on here also. So then I look. How many of you know when I start looking there, where's the car's nose going? Then it starts going that way. And, and we've got one of those cars that beep whenever something gets in the way. So even the grass on the road, beep, 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 beep. And it drives and it nuts. So she says to me, stop driving where you're looking. And Keep in the roads. I'm like, stop driving where you're looking. That's impossible. Because Try it when you go home today, not in traffic, please. (laughs) But if you're driving that way and you start looking that way, it's not long and then the car's going to go that way. It's sort of automatic and that's what our lives are like when it comes to living in the flesh. If you are geared, if your mind is set on the things of the flesh, your life is going to go that way. If your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, that's where your life's gonna go. But let me tell you, it's very important. N.T. Wright, the scholar, says this. He says, the law of the Spirit is not what you look at. It is what you look through. So when I I repent and my life and I saved and I give my heart to Jesus, it's not what I'm looking at that merely changes. I, I stop looking at sin and I start looking at righteousness. That's part of it, but actually it goes deeper than that. What changes is how I look at life begins to change. Because if you look with the eyes of the flesh, you're looking through the flesh. And you interpret and translate and orientate and categorize and and prioritize everything according to the desires of the flesh. So you're looking through the eyes. of Your disposition, you're looking that way. When I get... Saved and translated, and and through the process of repentance, even in my daily life, what's happening is that I'm being taught by the Spirit to look at life through the Spirit. And I begin to see things completely differently. I begin to value things according to a different value system. I translate things differently. I categorize, I prioritize differently, not just because I'm looking on the surface at different things. It's the fundamental me that's changing. And that's what salvation is about. There's a beautiful quote, though I'm going to read and then I'm going to end, by, a read and say something and then I'll end. Written by Father, Father Jacques Felipe, who wrote quite a bit in a number of books about this journey of freedom. And into his book, uh, Interior Freedom, in his book he, he writes the following, and I've, we've got the quote so that you can follow with me, which quite a few words. He says this, our freedom always has this marvelous power to make what is taken from us by life events or other people into something offered. Externally there is no visible difference, but internally everything is transfigured. Fate into free choice, constraint into loss, love, loss into fruitfulness. Human freedom is of absolutely unheard of greatness. It does not confer the power to change everything, but it does empower us to give a meaning to everything, even meaningless things. And that is much better. We are not always masters of the unfolding of our lives, but we can always be masters of the meaning we give them. Our freedom can transform any event in our lives into an expression of love, abandonment, trust, hope, and offering. I think that's... So important to grasp. So when I'm living in the flesh, I'm setting my desires on the things of the flesh. What is the ultimate desire of the flesh? My way. So I'm taking control of my life so that thing goes the way I want it to go. So when something happens that breaks down my ability to pursue what I want in life, that thing becomes a problem. That thing causes me pain, trauma, loss, whatever. And then I try and deal with that thing to remove it so that I can still get what I want. Life in the spirit is very different than that. Why? Because a life in the spirit is when something happens to me that is now not, it's a loss, it's a trauma, it's a whatever, something bad happens to me. Yes, I feel the frustration of I'm trying to get somewhere and I'm trying to achieve something in life and this thing happens and it causes me to you know, lose and I feel all of that. But then what I do with it is I say, Lord, but ultimately I'm not in control of my life. And this is not about me getting what I want. What do you want, Lord? So in every situation, no matter how difficult and tragic it is, I can say, Lord, what do you want in this situation? You may not be the author of my tragedy. You may have never wanted me to experience this. You, this is not your plan for me. But yet, Lord... You can be found in this. And this I can turn. Instead of something being taken away from me, I can give you this as an offering and say, Lord, let it glorify your name. And that's the difference between the life in the spirit and the life in the flesh. Everything is for his glory, everything belongs to him. I have a deep friend, dear friend of mine, one of the elders at the South Church who's who's overcoming stage four cancer. So he's going through regular chemotherapy sessions, and, you know, as some of you are and understand and have been and have family members and loved one that goes through it, you know, and the white blood cell counts and the whole stuff and everything happening. So his whole life has come to a sense in a standstill because now this is what I have to deal with, is this cancer. He got it very suddenly, very sudden diagnosis and, like, Got the diagnosis the Thursday, Monday, we start therapy kind of deal. You know, it was like quick. Save his life. So in the flesh, you feel all the trauma and the pain and the everything that comes with it. But what he's able to do, as many others have done, I'm just using this as an example, is to say, okay. So I find myself, I don't think God gave me the cancer. I don't think God's desire for me, God's plan. But what this means is my front line has shifted. And this is his language. My front line has shifted. My front line used to be my work and other things. But now, my front line is sitting in that room with other people every now and then that are all going through chemotherapy and going through horrible things. And perhaps that's now my front line where I can sit and be hope and share my Jesus with them. Can you see what's happening? He's not in control of that situation. But he can find meaning. It can add purpose and meaning to that situation. Because this cancer is not just something that is now frustrating his ability to get what he wants in life. Taking time away from his family, taking money, taking whatever. It is now to say, Lord, I offer this to you to say, Jesus, I know this is not what was in your plans for me. But I live in a broken, fallen world. I'm not guaranteed as a believer that I'm not going to feel the pain of this world. But I can have meaning in this moment. And meaning is not what I give it, it's not my meaning. It's, Lord, what is your meaning that I can find? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. Listen to that verse, our dear friend David writes. He says, though I walk through, that means death is breathing on you. You smell it, you feel it. It's threatening you. It's right around you. It feels like it's gonna suffocate you and kill you. He says, I will fear no evil. Not because there isn't evil or because evil can't do anything to me, but because my life is more than what anything evil can do to me. My life has eternal value and eternal purpose. And everything that evil throws at me, I can turn around and say, God, this is for you. And therefore, I have victory. That's why we in every situation can have victory. Because every situation, and that ultimately, my friends, is what Romans 8.28 means. Romans 8.20 means, when it says, and God will turn all things together for the good of those who love and are called according to this purpose. Many people translate that to me. oh, so I bumped my car and my car is now dinged and the insurance doesn't want to pay. So now God is going to work out so I'm going to get a better car. Praise the Lord if that happens. Fantastic. Wonderful. That's not actually what that scripture means. That scripture means that anything that comes against me, God in me, with my understanding and cooperation, because I love him and I'm called according to his purposes, that anything that happens, I can turn around for his glory. Some battles, we come out on top. Some battles, well, let me just say, some of our dear friends, the disciples in the Bible, didn't always come home. Did they lose? No. The eternal cloud of witnesses. They're sitting up there and they're saying, my life, even my death, that to some may have felt meaningless, has meaning because it's glorified my Jesus. It made him shine. That's the joy of our life. That's freedom. So the focus is not this stuff. Sin, that's something we have to deal with that's the obstacle. It's not what we focus on. We don't live our lives about the flesh and sin and how we live our lives. How do I live free in Jesus? Free from the constraints of this fleshly broken world, this disordered world that I'm living in. I'm right here. I feel it. It's, it's in me. Sometimes it's around me. But because of Jesus, my life is, I have a freedom. I'm not defined and confined to this world. This world is not my home. This world is not my destination. This world is not my origin. This world is a part of my story for his glory. But my life is so much more than what you see right now. And that's our freedom. And we get to turn that into his glory right now. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But if you offer up, if you lose your life, you will gain it. Save your life is the flesh. It's my life. Don't touch my life. How dare you stop me from doing what I want to do? It's my life. I've only got one. Stay away from me. Stop trying to touch my life. If that's what you do, you will lose it. But if you come and say, here's my life, Lord, I give it to you. It's yours, it belongs to you. Jesus says you will gain it. Because you will gain something so big, much bigger than what you could have ever thought possible. Won't you stand with me? It's warm in this place. Hey, it's hot. Is it because God is speaking to some people about sin and the heat of summer? Amen? Whose fault is it that it's so hot in this place? No, it's just the way that people don't get all weird and funky on me now. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. God has for you freedom that is like indescribable. And thank you, Jesus, that through repentance I get to lay down the old stuff. And that happens once off in Christ, I'm forgiven, my sins are dealt with, I am set free from the bondage of sin. But also daily I walk in that journey of forgiveness. So let's close our eyes and I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray right now, in this very room, for those of us that are joining us online, I pray for peace to fill our hearts right now in Jesus' name. Because the flesh leads to anxiety. Because the flesh finds security in control. Managing things, making things go the way I think it should go. And it's impossible to do that. So there's this increasing sense of failure in the flesh that leads to anxiety. But the spirit leads to peace. Because I am right with God. God is on my side. God is for me. I can rest in him. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and keep your mind in Christ Jesus. So right now I want to pray, Lord, where there's anxiety, where there's fear, where there's stress and tension, I pray, Lord, right now that it will be replaced by peace, by joy, by celebration. Blessed is the man Or the person whose sins are forgiven, David says. Blessed are you because your sins have been forgiven. It is not over. It is not over. It is not over. And I speak that peace, that joy over every life here in Jesus' name. Won't you just say thank you, Jesus, for the the peace of God. For the joy of the Lord, I receive freedom in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he go before you. May you break the strongholds of the evil one. May you dismantle every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. May you walk in the victory that Christ has purposed for you. May your freedom bring hope and release to the captives because this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the season of the favor of God where where the blind will see, the lame will walk. This is the season, Father, of your grace and of your forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want prayer this morning, thank you for being with us. If you want prayer this morning, please come to the front. Our team will be with you as always, ready to pray with you. If you've never decided to give your life to Jesus, today's your day. Come and say to them, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And let them pray that with you. Please remember to meet Debbie in the function hall, in the foyer hall. If you want to find out about Connect Lounge. If you're online and you want somebody to reach out to you and pray with you, go to send an email to pray for me at hatfield.co.za. And then lastly, the year of your life. A booth is in the foyer. If you want some more information for a school leaver, please go and get that information there. Bless you.